The ANC is the biggest political liability for South Africa. I am not afraid to say it. If you look at all our, pro our big national problems, whether you want to talk about our blackouts now, we have blackouts thanks to the ANC. Now, the question is, can the ANC turn around suddenly and fix the state? No. Why do I say no? Look at what is happening in the party. The ANC is not preoccupied with fixing the state. The ANC is preoccupied with fighting factional battles. Hello, my name is Donald and welcome to Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that can broaden our worldview. Today, we're talking with Prince Mashele. Prince is a political analyst and the author of The Fall of the ANC, What Next? and The Death of Our Society. Prince, welcome to the show. Thanks, Donald, for inviting me and uh, greetings to your viewers. Great. If we can start with a very interesting topic, the, the so-called Phoenix poster debacle. The DS recently put up posters and, and case it in, which says the, the ANC calls you racist, we call you euros. And since then they have removed those posters. What is your opinion of that? Do you think, do you believe that was doomed to fail from the start? There is no question about it, that uh, the posters of the DA um, were going to cause controversy. Whoever designed them, must have expected that they would generate a political storm. So in my view, I think it was intentional on the part of the DA to put up those posters. What is the situation in Phoenix? The situation is this. There were racial tensions between Indians and Africans resulting in people being killed. And in the May, the majority of the people who were killed are Africans. So the ANC reacted and called Indians in their commas racists, and the DA calls them uh, heroes. Quite clearly, the DA has taken sides here. It sides with Indians and is dismissive of the Africans who have died. So in the context of uh, local government elections, it is very clear that the DA in Phoenix decided that it does not want the votes of Africans, it wants the vote of Indians, which is why it designed the message that um, was on its posters the way it did, to say, Indians vote for us, you are not racist. Africans are dismissive of you. That's my reading of the Phoenix situation. The summary of it is that the DA is insensitive to racial tensions in Phoenix, and you can extrapolate and say in South Africa as a whole. Uh, but do you think this was planned from where it started to now, or do you think they only removed the posters because of the blowback? Clearly, they removed the, the posters because of the blowback. They never imagined that it would, it would catch the attention of the entire nation and therefore painting a negative picture of the party nationally. They thought that the posters would be confined to Phoenix 
and they would be able to harvest the votes of Indians without the rest of South Africa realizing what is going on in that small corner of the country. And they were wrong. The posters became uh, the center of national discourse. And quite clearly, the DA was embarrassed, which is why it had to remove them quickly. Mm. And I, I recently watched an interview where ENC, ENCA did an interview with Tony Leon, who obviously is the former leader of the Democratic Alliance. And Tony Leon says that there's a double standard here. He says, for example, that the EFF has recently reaffirmed that all the Indians and Phoenix are racist. And Prince Butulesi from the IFP has said that, the, that those who stood for the rule of law and Phoenix are heroes. So he says there's one standard for the Democratic Alliance and another standard for the other parties. Do you think that's true? It's not true. Um, and there's a political context here. Number one, we know that the EFF is a racist party. Racist in the main against whites and against Indians. They are clear about their racism against these two groups of South Africans. And they have been condemned for it. I personally have condemned the EFF publicly for its racism against Indians and against uh, white South Africans. So it is not true that the EFF does not get condemned by South Africans when it utters racist statements. That's number one. Number two, the racism, the alleged racism of the DA is directed against black people. And the reason why there is sensitivity on the part of black people with regard to the racist racism of the DA is because of our history of apartheid. Remember that apartheid was actually a white regime against the majority in South Africa who happened to be black. So whenever there is a statement from white quarters against black people, Black people remember what happened to them, what the white regime of apartheid did to them. That's why Blacks are hypersensitive when it comes to racism from, from white quarters. But it is not true that um, South Africans are, 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 not, are not as sensitive to the racism of the EFF as they are sensitive to the racism of the DA. The EFF has been dismissed. As I said, we all know that the, the, the EFF is actually a racist party against specifically whites and against specifically Indians. Mm. And that's a very interesting perspective, Prince. And yeah, that's, it's interesting to, to hear you say that yeah, it, there's a more emotional context when it comes to black people and thus the DA needs to be more sensitive. But on that note, Tony Leon has recently, or a few months back, has also said that uh, Musi Maimane was an experiment gone wrong. What is your opinion of that? Is that also a very insensitive, almost racist thing to say? It's an honest thing to say. Tony Leon is being honest. And by the way, I like human beings who are honest because even myself, I'm honest. So what is the honesty of Tony Leon? Here is what Tony Leon was saying. We know that the DA was formed by white South Africans. Um, anybody who thinks that I am lying must go back and watch the recordings of the first meeting between the uh, new national party, the DP, and there was a federal component to it. You will be very lucky to see a black person in that room. 
So the DA was formed by white South Africans. So at some point, those who formed the DA, that is white South Africans, and Tony Leon was in that room, by the way, they decided that they are going to experiment with the, um, with, with the small opening of the space in the DA to allow a few blacks to come into the leadership structures of the party. Musimai Mane was the first biggest experiment by those whites. They said, let's try and hand over the party to a young black chap and see how it will go and see if it will work as a bait to attract black voters. In the main, it did not work. And the rank and file of the DA who happened to be white, these began to be anxious about their party being in the hands of a black leader. So what did those who formed the DA do? They decided to take back their part, kicked out Musimaimane, Herman Mashava, and the few were in the leadership ranks of the party. So um, uh, Tony Leon is right to say it was an experiment gone wrong. He was part of the experiment, by the way, Tony Leon. So he's being honest. We shouldn't condemn him for being honest. But just to add to that, I think Tony Leon would say that... Um, Musa, Musi Maimane never believed in the core principles of the DA. That's why he says it's an experiment gone wrong because they never they found a leader that never really believed in the principles of the DA. Is that an accurate uh, criticism? Well, if, if Tony Leon were to say that, I would say he is completely um, uh, disingenuous and wrong because he would have to tell us what are those core principles of the DA that Musimai Mena did, did not believe in. I understand, by the way, the principles of the DA, or let me put it this way, the purported principles of the DA. In the May, DA market is a, a It's actually incorrect. The DA is not a liberal part, in my view. The DA, it's actually a nationalist part. Let me, let me explain to you what do I mean by that. The DA has housed within itself um, in the main two nationalisms, Africana nationalism. So the Africaners who used to belong to the old national part are there in the DA as we speak today. And they have not forgotten that they are an Africana nation. Anybody who thinks that they have forgotten that an African nation must go and study Africaners who vote for the DA, you will find that they still maintain their cultural organizations. The Brutal Bond, by the way, is still there. Cultural formations of the Africaners are still there. They are still very sentimental about defending their own Africana culture and their own Africana language. So, Anybody who's going to tell me the DA is a liberal party must tell me why are these Africaners who are nationalists still in the DA? That's the first component of nationalism. The second component of nationalism that is in the DA that Tony Leon is not telling South Africans about is English stroke Jewish nationalism. Tony Leon, by the way, belongs to the Jewish component of, of nationalism. The Jews in South Africa have nothing that they actually constitute a nation. Go and study them. You will find that they continue to maintain their organizations that maintain their Jewishness. And that applies to the English, by the way. 
The English have preached liberalism in South Africa at the same time praying for God to save the queen. They have never forgotten that they constitute a, an English nation. So this whole thing that the DA is a liberal party, it's actually a subterfuge by those who run the party, they want to fool others. So Musima Imani has never contravened any DA principle. The only thing that happened to him is that he happens to be black. And as, as a black man, he belongs to a black nation, just like an African individual belongs to an African nation, just like a Jewish individual belongs to a Jewish nation. This idea that we're going to dissolve South Africa into some kind of a melting pot, it's not gonna work. In any case, by the way, even our constitution doesn't promote that idea. It says we are a united nation. We are a nation united in diversity. So we don't dissolve Jews. We don't dissolve Africaners. We don't dissolve Zulus. We are simply united in, the, in our diversity, which is why we have a Heritage Day in September. Hmm. That's a fascinating perspective. And I can definitely agree with the sentiment that there's a lot of Afrikaans conservatives that vote for the DA who don't really believe in the principles. I think a lot of them really voted only for Ellen Ziller and not for the Democratic Alliance. But if we, if we can pivot to the EFF, I don't think a lot of people know about what happened in the VBS looting scandal. Can you tell our viewers how have the EFF been implicated in the VBS looting scandal? Look, the VBS looting scandal in the main was a political looting project. That should be the starting point. How was it political? VBS as a black owned bank based in the main in Venda, although it was operated was supported by municipalities and the municipalities were run by the ANC. So there was a collusion bet between the municipalities that were run by the ANC and the leadership of the EFF. So this is how it works. A provincial treasurer general of the ANC in Lipo went around instructing municipalities run by the ANC to invest in BBS. Because the leadership of the EFF, that is Julius Malima and Flotchivam, come from Lipombo, they wield massive political influence in those municipalities. They too went around using their connections in Lipombo to tell municipalities to invest in VBS. And then there was a partnership between those who run the bank and the leadership of the EFF and that of the ANC in the province. But if you bring municipalities to invest VBS, are going to be a kickback. That's how Floyd Chibamo's younger brother got massive amounts of money. That's how the cousin of Julius Malin also got money. And this money was actually channeled to Floyd Chibamo and Julius Malin. That's how they stole money in VBS. And do you think it will be the end of the EFF if this were to go to trial to a court case? Look, my sense is that if it were to go to trial, the link between Julius Malima, Floyd Shibambo, and the looting would be established because we have seen from the media, particularly the Daily Maverick, 
the link in terms of the flow of money from Julia's cousin into Julia's bank account, as well as the link between Floyd Chwambu's younger brother and Floyd's bank account. So if it were to go to trial, in my view, I think that link would be firmly established. And obviously the EFF would be affected politically if it were to be established that directly they looted from, from VBS. The question is, why is it not going to why is it not going to trial and why is the case too slow? My sense is that there must be some politics being played somewhere. I have no evidence of that effect. Hmm. That's interesting. Perhaps they're just overwhelmed. But if, if we can move to the ANC, I recently spoke to Dr. Vincent Mapai, and he has said that he believes the one person that could have saved the ANC is Tabu Mumbeki. He believes no matter what you thought about Tabu Mbeki, Tabu Mbeki had a vision and he drove that vision. And he says one of the main problems with the ANC today is that they are indecisive. Do you believe that is the case? That Tabu Mbeki could have saved the ANC? I, I, I agree that Tabu Mbeki had a vision and his vision was clear. Um, so politically, he marketed it as the African license. What was the thrust of the African Renaissance? Was the idea that at some point, Africa was a global continent, sorry, was a glorious continent, and that it was behind important scientific discoveries. And it was suggesting that it is possible to go back to that glorious period where Africa could play an important role um, in scientific uh, discoveries and provide leadership and make a positive contribution to the world, to world civilization. That was the essence of Tawumbek. And he articulated it, the speeches are there. You could see that in the way in which he led South Africa, he wanted to make an example that Africans can lead. The idea that Africans are idiots, they can't lead modern um, societies is wrong. In the main, there was structure in the way Tabumbeki was leading South Africa. By the way, for the first time under the leadership of Tabumbeki, Africa was even invited to attend G7 meetings. It had never happened before. So the projection of Africa as a progressive continent that can contribute something to the world was Tabumbeki's mission. Now, that's the, that's the end of my agreement with uh, Vincent Mapai. My disagreement is here. Could Tawombeki have saved the ANC? No. There is no single individual who can save a party for eternity. No. At some point, an individual ages and an individual dies. So this idea that Tawombeki could have lasted eternally and therefore eternally serving as the pillar of the ANC stability is wholly wrong. There is nothing like that. At some point, Tawombeki had to exit. The question is, what are the weaknesses that explain the inevitable collapse of the ANC? Those weaknesses, Tawombeki could have done absolutely nothing about them because there is no way he could have presided over the ANC in perpetuity. What are the weaknesses? Weakness number one, which is the main, is the appropriation of the part, the ANC, by individual, by individuals within the party and powerful individuals within the party. And it's repurposing 
and conversion into a means of personal enrichment. In other words, the entry of the corrupt element and the capture of the, of the ANC by the corrupt element. That Tawambeki would never have prevented. So the problem is this. The ANC does not have a culture of punishing wrongdoing. If you don't have a culture of punishing wrongdoing, you must know that eventually your party will collapse. There is no way you, one individual can save a party. You need processes and, and, and systems in order to protect a party. And that's what the ANC does not have. Do you think, um, how do you think this came about? Wasn't it something that came from the top and that Tabum Beki generally had that vision of punishing wrongdoers? But when Zuma took over, it, it was mainly him that drove this new culture. No, no, no. Here's the thing, by the way, and this is the mistake made by Tawumbi. He thought he could use the, AN, the state to fix the ANC. He was completely wrong. He should have used the ANC to fix itself. So if you look at the people who are being, the corrupt people and leaders of the ANC who are being arrested, they were arrested by the state. They were not subjected to disciplinary action within the party. And that's where he got it wrong. It's like Cyril Ramaphosa, I watch him. He is making the same mistake. The idea that you can actually deal with Ace Mahashul by arresting him through state institutions and you don't institute disciplinary hearings within the party. So the idea is this. Those who support the rogue elements in the ANC, they say, aha, uh -huh. look at our comrades. They are using state institutions to target us. But if you were to deal with them internally in the part, they wouldn't have um, legs to stand on. So that is the mistake. The ANC does not punish wrongdoing internally. As a result, its leaders, those who think that they can fix the ANC, they use state institutions hoping they can fix the ANC. That won't happen. Mm, that's a very interesting perspective, friends. So, it's, so the party should be leading the discussion, not the state, in terms of prosecutions. But, um, so, sorry, did you want to say something? Yeah, yeah, pre precisely. Remember, it is, the, it is the governing part. It is the party that tells the state what to do. So if you want to transform the, the ANC, you don't do that in the state, you do that in the part. If you are serious about punishing corruption, Start in the party, don't start in the state. Mm. And, and now in, in terms of the long-term future of South Africa, do you think the ANC at this point is beyond redemption and that South Africa will only be saved by an opposition party? I have no doubt about it. The ANC is the biggest political liability for South Africa. I am not afraid to say it. If you look at all our, pro our big national problems, whether you want to talk about our blackouts now, we have blackouts thanks to the ANC. If you look at the collapse of public institutions such as public schools in black communities, such as the collapse of public hospitals, all of those institutions have been collapsed by the ANC. Now, the question is, can the ANC turn around suddenly and fix the state. No, why do I say no? 
Look at what is happening in the party. The ANC is not preoccupied with fixing the state. The ANC is preoccupied with fighting factional battles. And if you say the ANC, by the way, it is very confusing because the question is, which ANC are you talking about? Ace Mahashule is a member of the ANC. Zoelim Kiza is a member of the ANC and is a corrupt uh, chair. Jacob Zuma is still a member of the ANC. Cyril Ramaphosa is a member of the ANC. So you don't know which ANC you're talking about. So when they tell you about renewal, you then look at this whole mix, you realize that there is nothing uh, called renewal. So my, my view is that the ANC has become too rotten to be salvaged. No one will salvage the ANC. I see an inevitable collapse. And that collapse, by the way, will result in the ANC losing an election. I can assure you, and I'm still fairly young, I will see the ANC out of power. The longest the ANC can stay in power is under 10 years. If it were to win the 2024 elections, it would be through a very, very low margin. It would be under 55%. Remember the ANC now is standing at 70, I mean, sorry, uh, 57 point something percent. For the first time in the history of the ANC post 1994, the ANC has scored under 60%. And if you look at the trajectory over the past 15 years or so, the ANC has been coming down. So the trend is there, I'm not manufacturing it. The ANC cannot be salvaged. It will lose power at some point. If it, don't, it doesn't lose it in 2024, certainly in 2029, the ANC will not be the government of South Africa. Then the question is what happens, what happens next, which is um, the subtitle of our book. What happens next is this. You will not jump from the one majority party into another new party. It's not gonna happen. The transition of our politics will go through coalition politics. So when there's a new government in South Africa, we are likely to see what we have seen in Johannesburg, what we have seen in Tuan and Nelson Mandela Bay. It will be a collection of opposing parties constituting a government, including elements that come from the ANC, by the way. So if I were to predict the future of the ANC of the country of South Africa in terms of politics, will go through a bridge called coalition politics. And it will take many years until one party emerges as a majority governing part. It could be that I'll be dead when that happens. Don't you think it will be absolute chaos, especially with the EFF if they garner between 15 or 20% of the vote? Won't they cause this era of coalition politics to be complete chaos? I don't think so, by the way. Uh, you see, we, we are lucky in the sense that we have had experiments in this regard. Um, you could say Nelson Mandela Bay was chaos, right? You could say uh, Tswane was chaos, but not as chaotic as Nelson Mandela Bay. And Tswane is still standing, by the way, as the coalition government. As we speak, people forget that. There's not collapsed. Yes, it has changed many mayors, but it has stood as a, as a government. The most stable, by the way, coalition government was Johannesburg under Herman Mashaba. And, uh, and, 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 and that was achieved with the EFF being an important component of that government. 
So we have seen that it is possible to, uh, to achieve stability in an unstable context. So my sense is that there won't be, there won't be chaos per se. There will be give and takes. They will have, they would have to be give, give and takes in a coalition arrangement. But here's the other thing. Remember that most of Europe, Western Europe, which is viewed as a stable part of the democratic world, is actually governed by coalition parties. People forget that. So I'm not scared about coalition parties because I've seen them elsewhere in the world, especially in democracies. Mm. And if you could give advice to an opposition party to capture some of these voters that are now staying away, I believe it's only 26% of registered voters that still vote for the ANC. There's a lot of people not voting. Do you, what advice would you give for an opposition party to capture many of these votes and become a next majority party? You need a new, fresh opposition party to emerge. The problem with the current opposition parties, the leading ones, the DA and the, and the EFF, have disappointed voters. I mean, let's be honest about it. What has happened in the DA in, 20, in 2019, um, after the 2016 elections, the chaos, the exiting of Herman Mashaba, Musmaima, it has actually sent a negative message to voters that the DA cannot be trusted as a government in waiting in South Africa. And in fact, among black, um, the, the, the black voters, there is a perception that the DA has regressed to becoming a purely white party. So my prediction is that the DA is not, to gulp, is not going to galvanize the majority of South Africans to vote for it. The EFF also has been affected by scandals and it's also a very scary party. I've, I've gone on record to say the EFF is actually a fascist part. And I've studied enough of fascism and Nazism, by the way. I have seen the parallels between fascism and Nazism and the EFF. So the EFF doesn't command the confidence of the great majority in South Africa. It will be part of the mix of the coalition politics. There's no question about it. But you need a fresh party that is going to inspire both blacks and whites to say we can have hope in politics again. Once you have that, maybe you can um, re-motivate the South Africans who have not been voting to say, okay, there is something fresh on the horizon. Let's try it. If you don't have that, I think that we are going to have more despondency depending in our society. So uh, don't you think it's possible that the DA could succeed if they just rebranded themselves? Or do you think that party is forever tarnished? Look, remember, they had an experiment and they themselves say it has gone wrong. What was the experiment about? Was to experiment with black leadership. Let me tell you, there is no party in South Africa, doesn't matter the branding, they may have spin doctors and they believe in their spin doctors, they think doctors. A party that is um, a party for white South Africans will never govern South Africa. A party that is perceived to be a party for black South Africans will never govern South Africa. If you look at South Africa's history, you will see the evidence of what I'm talking about. The National Party governed South Africa obviously because it was not, there was no democracy at the time. On the black side of things, the parties that declared themselves to be parties for black people, your black consciousness parties, 
your Azapos of this world, your PAC, your PACs of this world. Black people never voted for them, never supported them. So black people don't support parties that say we are a party for black people, which is why even the EFF, by the way, will never govern South Africa. Because the EFF projects itself as a party for black people. Black people don't want a party for black people. They want a party for South Africans. The reason why the ANC for the longest time has enjoyed the support of the majority in South Africa is precisely because it has projected itself as a multiracial party. And when you looked at the party uh, within its ranks and within its leadership, you could see black people, you could see white people. So even the DA, it's making a strategic mistake. This idea that you are going to have a white part leading South Africa, it can lead the Western Cape. There's no question about it. And the ANC will never get the Western Cape again. But it will never lead South Africa. It doesn't matter how brilliant their political strategies are. Mm. And it seems like the ANC's corruption is representative, representative of many um, leaders in Africa, there, there seems to be a problem with power and corruption in Africa, at, at, at least at the political level. Why do you think that is the case? Why is there such a problem with um, uh, uh, um, leaders staying where they are and becoming corrupt, not giving into the democratic process? It's an interesting question you're asking. And um, if you were to pose it to Helen Zilla, she would be in trouble for saying what I'm going to say now. But I can say it, maybe I have an advantage because I'm black. <laughs> look, if you look at the history of Africa, you don't find democracy as part of Africa's political culture. Let's start there. How has Africa governed itself? Africa has governed itself through the institution of traditional leadership. That's how Africa historically has been governing itself. And by the way, Africa in that regard is not unique. All human beings all over the world have a history of being governed by kings and queens. There's no part of the world that doesn't have this history, by the way. It depends on when did a part of a country begin to change and move from that system into a system of democracy. And Europe happened to make that move first. Even though after it made that move, by the way, Europe was, has been plagued with wars all the way to the 20th century, by the way. But let's leave Europe. Let's come back to Africa. So Africa has not experimented with democracy, uh, with democracy all the way to the 20th, to the, to the late 20th century. The first serious experiment, democratic experiment, happened after 1950. And that is yesterday in, in historic terms, by the way. So Africans don't have a culture of democracy. Let's, let's be honest about it. So what we have seen is this. Traditional leaders were never clean. If you were to go to an African village, and if you want to test what I'm telling you today, go to an African village, not outside South Africa, but in South Africa. This is what you're going to see. You are going to see poverty in that village you will see that this is the, this is the house of an African Induna or an African chief. That is the man with many cattle. That is the man with the biggest house and so on and so forth. So wealth tends to be concentrated in the hands of the rulers in Africa. That culture has found its way into our, political, our African political parties. 
The big man, the president, has the biggest house, is driven in the biggest car, has the biggest wealth, right? So even the followers have no problem with the fact that the big man is the richest. So when you say, let us do against this culture of the big man being the richest, Africans say, but that is un-African. So we Africans have to struggle with our own traditions and our own history. And we have not, in my view, begun to have a serious conversation about this problem. It is a problem and it needs to be sorted out. Mm. Can, can one say that essentially Africa is going through the medieval equivalent of a renaissance? They're just a bit behind and with technology, they can catch up quickly. No, I'll tell you what. The renaissance, from the renaissance in Europe, was actually characterized by a vibrant, the emergence of a vibrant cultural and intellectual uh, activity. So if you want to look at the, the, uh, the Europeans in terms of the renaissance and in terms of, uh, in terms of the enlightenment, you will find leading thinkers who were writing serious treatises to say, let us change, let us allow reason to take the place of myth. You can go to, uh, you can go to Voltaire, you can go to Kant if you want to, to look at enlightenment. The question is, in Africa, where are those shining intellectual lights? We don't have. So the so-called African Renaissance, and this is exactly where Tabombeki got it wrong, by the way. His so-called African Renaissance did not exist. It was not driven by a serious intellectual activity. It was dangling in mid-air. On the ground, it was not happening. So the reason why we are not going to make the kind of progress Europe made as Africans, I would argue, it is precisely because the, the intellectual space is hollow. There are no serious texts. There are no serious public intellectuals who are challenging Africans to say, let's have a robust discussion about the rottenness of our system and the need to make a move in the direction of modernity. Even if you were to look at the, by the way, the Chinese uh, uh, civilization, you will find a guy like, like a Confucius, for example. This, the Chinese Communist Party to this day, by the way, has incorporated ele Confucian elements as part of its attempts to move China from a backward society into a modern society. And you can see visibly that they have made progress in the realm of science. You can show me an African country that has made progress in the realm of science and in the realm of ideas. You can show me Asian societies. Look at East Asia, your Singapore's of this world, your South Korea of this world, and I've been to this part of the world. Those guys are making progress at, at an intellectual level, at a scientific level. There is nothing like that in Africa. And that is our, our greatest weakness. Mm. And that's fascinating that you bring that up. Because on that note, Rob Herschel, he's a billionaire in South Africa. And he recently delivered a speech of, uh, that went viral on YouTube, where he lambasted African or South African leaders, businessmen who don't stand up to the ANC. He says that during apartheid, the Oppenheimers, the Ruperts, they frequently, they frequently stood up against the apartheid government. 
but he says there's no such thing today. Why do you think that is the case? Why is businessmen not leading this charge? Two things in the main. Number one, there are two kinds of businessmen in South Africa. And in the main, there are businessmen, there are few women. I mean, let's be honest about it. There are black businessmen and there are white businessmen. And they are both complicit in our political collapse through their silence. Why are they silent? The white businessmen are scared that if they speak up, they are going to be labeled racist. The black businessmen are scared that if they speak up, they are going to lose tenders that they receive through the state, which is controlled by the ANC. That's the summary of the story. So there is an incentive for both businessmen to remain silent. They benefit, they profit from their silence. And unfortunately, they are contributing to the collapse of our society because they have power, they have money. So if you have money, you can speak up because you, your money can protect you. You can go to court and defend yourself. You can challenge the state, go to court. You can hire bodyguards, right? But they've not been doing it because they continue to benefit. By the way, they are part of the corrupt, the corrupt system of the ANC. Just follow Cyril Ramaphosa and look at his man and say, where does it come from? Cyril Ramaphosa's money come from white business. It is white business that enriched Cyril Ramaphosa. So do you expect white business, the guys who have enriched Cyril Ramaphosa, Tokyo Sukhwale, and all those guys, to speak up against the ANC. No, they won't speak up because these are their clients. The ANC are the clients of white business, period. That's the problem. Mm. And I think the Oppenheimers and the Ruperts could speak out during apartheid because, because they were white. At most, they just got a slap on the wrist. They, they could do that. But today, it's a, it's a different dynamic. True. I mean, the Ruperts and the Open Amas, let's check them down. The Johan Rupert, um, the, the, the first Rupert, was a member of the Bruder Bond. By the way, his first money, his first project was financed by the, by the Bruder Bond and the state. I mean, we know this. I mean, go, go read the Super Africaners, that book. You will see it I have. there. Very interesting exactly. book. Exactly. He features there, he's mentioned there how he got the first money and so on and so forth. So those who were running apartheid were his buddies, were his friends. Uh, so when he, he spoke up against them, he was speaking up against his friends. They wouldn't murder him because they would be murdering his fr their friends. So, so, so there, was a, uh, it, it, there was a symbiosis between, between both those who were running the state and those who were in business. But today, because the white businessmen are white and they're scared of being labeled racist. They decide, let's keep quiet. But number two, they have sponsored the corrupt elements in the ANC, as I, as I said. Track every rich, seriously rich ANC connected leader. You will see that Rupert is involved in that enrichment you will see that the Oppenheimers are involved in that enrichment. So, so, so we must not be fooled. There, this, there's a meeting point between the ANC and rich 
white and black business people. Mm. And if we can pivot to a province that I live in, the Western Cape, I, I would love to hear your opinion on this latest calls for Cape secession, right? There's, there's been a latest poll that shows that 58% of Capetonians want a referendum. What is your opinion on this Western Cape secession debate? I wouldn't be surprised uh, that 58% of Capetonians would want a referendum. There is a historical context to this. Let us look at who runs the Western Cape, the anatomy of power in the Western Cape. The Western Cape is run by whites through the assistance of colors, period. People don't want to say these things, but we know, and, and, and any, any South African who has eyes and a bit of something in between, in between his, his or her ears can see this. The colors deliver the vote, the whites run power. That's the, that's the story of the, of, the, of the Western Cape. Now, those who are in power in, in the Western Cape, the whites, right? What did they want before 1994? They wanted a folk start. They wanted to be given a part of South Africa that they could run. I mean, I'm not manufacturing this thing. Go to the records of the negotiations. That's what they were calling for. And at the time, by the way, they had identified the free state. They obviously didn't get that. And later, they got the Western Cape. They are foxed that. So would it be surprising for them to, to want to secede and run their foxed that? No, they would want, because they have gotten what they wanted uh, in the Codessa negotiations. And then the colors, why do they play a part in this? The colors play a part in this because they are threatened by what Helen Zille called immigrants from the Eastern Cape. The Africans, remember the Africans are a minority in the, in, in the Western Cape. And the Africans and the colors are competing for jobs and economic opportunities. I mean, this is real, it's not fiction. So I wouldn't be surprised that the partnership of colors and whites would feel that if they were to run the province, it would be in their joint interest. But here's the thing, they can feel that way. It's not gonna happen. This is how a secession happens. There is no secession anywhere in the world that has ever happened without the people of that part taking up arms and fighting. So I don't see the colors taking up arms and fighting for the Western Cape to secede. I don't see whites, by the way, taking up arms and for the Western Cape to secede. Whites are enjoying life in, in Cape Town and it's good. So they want peace, they don't want war. Even colors, by the way, they don't want war, they want peace. So it's just talk and sentimental expression, but it's not going to go anywhere. Hmm. Well, thank you, Princess. It's been a fascinating and frank discussion. Absolutely loved it. Um, and I see our time is running up. So I want to give you one last opportunity to air plug or say anything that you want to. Well, what I would say is this. South Africa is a country that brings together, together different racial and tribal groups. If these racial and tribal groups don't come together to make a deal to govern this South Africa together, this country will fall apart. Any single component that thinks that it can still power and govern this country, such a component is delusional. 
whites and blacks have to hold hands and govern this country together. There's, they have no choice. Mm, well, I, I can definitely agree with that. And thank you so much for your time. To our viewers, uh, you've definitely liked the show if you've made it as far. So please consider liking it, subscribing and sharing it as widely as possible. My name is Donald and you've been watching Worldview.